You are listening to episode 28 of the Tennis Files podcast with special guest Jeff Sausenstein. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. I am really stoked to bring you a really fantastic interview with Jeff Sausenstein, who is really a legend in the online space of uh, tennis instruction. I mean, not only that, he was a former top 100 ATP player, uh, played in a lot of the Grand Slams, and uh, he is just really geared up on trying to find the best ways to help tennis players improve their tennis game, which is exactly what Tennis Fouls is all about. And so he you know, came out with a ton of really awesome um, free content, especially on YouTube, um, so if you just go to his channel, uh, YouTube channel, there's a ton of videos that can really help your game. And um, so, yeah, I mean, Jeff, he transitioned beautifully from the tour to coaching. And then he created uh, JeffSausensteinTennis.com. And then he uh, recently changed uh, the domain of his website to TennisEvolution.com. So I definitely really highly recommend that you check that site out. Um, and you know, there's a lot of great information from Jeff and, um, he's actually, uh, the guy who I first bought a course from. So the first tennis course that I've ever bought online was from Jeff. Uh, I'll have all the links actually from, uh, this interview at tennisfiles.com slash 28. So, uh, you know, I'm going to stop yapping here and, uh, let us get into the content. So here we go. Here's my interview with Jeff Sausenstein. Hey guys, we're here with Jeff Sausenstein, a former top 100 ATP pro and uh, an online tennis instruction wizard. Uh, he's put out just amazing and high quality content uh, in the form of uh, mainly tennis courses online. And he was actually the first guy who I purchased uh, tennis courses from. Um, last November, I believe, I purchased a Black Friday bundle which included a fitness course, and I had never seen so many uh, videos of dynamic stretches uh, in my life. Uh, so I learned so much uh, just from that. And I also purchased a uh, serve course called Tennis Serve Secrets, which had a lot of amazing, uh, you know, tips that really has helped my serve. And I just, you know, really appreciate, Jeff, all the things you're doing for, uh, you know, us tennis players that help us improve our tennis game. And uh, I just want to welcome you onto the show. Oh, Marbon, it's an absolute pleasure to be on here with you. Thank you for reaching out and finding me and, and asking me to be on the podcast. And, and hopefully the next 30 to 45 minutes, I'll be able to, to deliver a lot of value to you and your listeners. Yeah, I'm totally confident that you will, Jeff. And again, thanks so much. And so, Jeff, I just want to kind of get uh, a sense of, you know, the beginnings of your tennis career. So how did you uh, get your start playing tennis? 
Sure. Well, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to bore the audience, so I'll, I'll try to get through it as quick as possible so we can get through some of the juicy stuff. But, um, the quick and dirty is that, uh, I started playing tennis, uh, not out of the womb, but pretty close. I was probably three, four, five years old when I started hitting balls. My father was a, a teaching pro. It's, you know, the same story where, where someone in the family, a mother or father's into tennis and, Next thing I know, I'm on the court at four or five hitting balls with my dad and, and doing little coordination drills. And, and my mom was a player as well. And uh, when I was eight years old, I won my first trophy. And if anyone out there has played tennis for a while and they, they win that first trophy, a lot of times you get hooked after that. So I found early success in tennis uh, because I started at a young age, because I had a good coach and my father who understood the fundamentals and, and was a very a very good coach without putting pressure on me. By the time I was nine, I was number one in the state in Colorado, which isn't exactly a tennis hotbed, but I was still surprised to to be number one at that level at that age. And then at age 12, I actually was a national champion. I won the nationals at 12 years old. And uh, that was a bit surprising as well because I'm from Colorado. I'm not training in California or Florida or some hot academy uh, and somehow I was beating kids from, from those states. So, you know, the, probably the pinnacle of my junior career was at age 12 because from that point on, for about three or four years, I went through tremendous adversity w- as, as far as a junior tennis player goes. I mean, nothing serious happened to me um, health-wise or anything like that, but my ranking plummeted. And by the time I was 15, I was down to 69 in the country. I believe I was triple crowned at Kalamazoo. For those that don't know what a triple crown is, that's not a good thing. Uh, Lost first round in singles, first round in doubles, and first round in the backdrop. So if you're 15 years old and you're 69 in the country after being number one in the country at age 12, you're probably not feeling that great about your tennis. And so those were some lean years confidence wise. There was, there were different factors of why that happened. And, uh, most players would probably fall by the wayside at that point. And I wouldn't blame them if they did, because it didn't, it's a, it's a bit of a jolt as a, as a young, as a youngster to have to kind of deal with, with those setbacks when you've had early success. But I was able to write the ship and by the time I was 18, I got back to top four in the country and accepted a, a scholarship to Stanford. So uh, that was, um, it was, it was kind of a long, windy, up and down road, uh, but it kind of spoke to the early beginnings of, of dealing with adversity and, and picking yourself up and trying to find ways to get better, which I've tried to do throughout my career, both in junior, in, in college, in the pros, and, and now in my business. So uh, that's, that's kind of how things got started. So Jeff, uh, during that rough patch, um, you mentioned that you know your your confidence plummeted. But you know, what was the cause? Um, was there anything strategic or a technical change in your game that caused you to uh, you know go down in the rankings? And then uh, can you talk a bit more about how you were able to you know come back up from from that uh, rough patch? Sure. So there there were a couple of things that went into play. Number one, I was a very late bloomer, so probably. Like to joke with people, I was, you know, the last person to go through puberty. You know, I was five foot four, 102 pounds at 15 and a half. So, you know, I'm starting to play at 15 and a half. I'm playing guys that are six foot two, 180, probably could be linebackers on their high school team and high school football teams. And I, I was just super small. So right, right off the bat, I had a huge disadvantage at that age physically. And when I was 12, it wasn't quite. 
uh, it wasn't a huge, huge kid, but it wasn't as, as big of a contrast then. I had really solid fundamentals. I was a very good athlete, very natural athlete early. But there's only so much you can make up for when you're, when you're that small at 15, uh, 14, 15 years old. I also got into a few bad habits. I didn't really have at that time. I wasn't living with my father. My stepfather was actually a, a great player too at Trinity. And I was living with him and my mother and he would hit with me, um, a lot, but he wasn't really a, a technician. Um, he was, he was of course great with me in so many other ways, but, uh, my father was probably more into my fundamentals. So I spent less time with him and I didn't have a coach that was, uh, in Colorado that could really help me fundamentally. So I thought, I, I think I got into some sloppy habits and then also I was playing other sports. So I was playing basketball. I was skiing. Uh, I was doing other things and I, I wasn't putting in the hours that a lot of kids have to if they're going to excel. And so I really had to make a decision at 15 and a half, 16, what I was going to do with the rest of my junior career. And that's when I stopped playing basketball. I stopped skiing and I focused solely on tennis and I really got back to the fundamentals. I really focused personally on the fundamentals. I had some coaches that started to help me in that area. So it was a number, like I said, it was a number of factors, but I was able to again, right the ship and, and get things going in the right direction. Thanks to my stepfather and thanks to other coaches that uh, helped me growing up and thanks to my own internal drive to get better. Yeah, that's amazing, Jeff. And can you talk about maybe one of the bigger technical changes that you remember uh, making? Yeah. So at that time, what, what the biggest thing that I was struggling with was growing up in Colorado, high altitude, there's a tendency to pull off of the ball and not to extend out through the target. And it's funny because I finally went to Robert Lansdorp when I was about 28 years old for my first lesson because I was always scared <laughs> scared to go to him before because I had heard he always makes the kids cry and he was so tough on him. And I was a pretty sensitive guy and didn't really like the yellers. So I finally went to him for a lesson. And you know, at 28, we were hitting the targets and he was having me extend on my backhand, and I think the bad habits for me were pulling off the ball, and so I had to really work on extension, um, really work on getting through the ball, and you know the simple things at that time, not knowing what I know about the game now and how to teach the game, but you know my stepdad was always big on you know just making sure you get your feet in get your feet in position, your body in position for every sh- shot. So I really had to go back to exaggerating, uh, getting, getting my feet in position. And back in those days, you know, we're, we're going on, you know, nearly 25, 30 years ago, it was still a lot of front foot, step in, get on your front foot, um, hit the ball flatter. Uh, there wasn't a lot of heavy rotation happening, uh, off the ground strokes, especially in Denver, Colorado on fast indoor courts. So I would say extension, I would say, uh, cleaning up the footwork and just a real general sense, you know, if you picture Jimmy Connors and how he was always squeaking his feet and getting on the front foot, um, those were a lot of things I was doing there that helped me get into those better habits again. So with the footwork, um, one kind of technical question that came to mind is, in your opinion, should players be adjusting their feet until the last possible moment? Or is it kind of where you get your feet set and then you're supposed to have maybe like a a couple, you know, like half a second and then you launch into the ball or kind of what's your take on that? Sure. So it's interesting because whenever people and players and coaches start to ask me questions like that, technique, footwork, strategy, 
you know, before I answer that question, I always have to tell folks that tennis is a situational game. So to, I, I, I really, I think to make blanket statements about what you should or shouldn't do is you put yourself in a difficult position to, to be so, to have such a strong stance about something. So mm-hmm. with that being said, I think there's certain shots that you need to adjust your feet depending on the type of ball. I think there are certain shots that you actually have to be more measured with your footwork and see if you can find the correct rhythm to the ball, which is actually what I try to teach more than really adjusting the feet a lot right before. But sometimes you have to. Sometimes you're out of position at the last moment and you do have to adjust your feet. But generally, I like to try to get people to understand how footwork uh, how it works, uh, how dynamic it is, how there's a flow, a tempo, and a timing depending on the speed of the ball. So if balls come slower, you actually don't have to move as fast to the ball. If balls comes come faster, you have to move faster. Then we get into the height of the ball. If the ball is high, now we're talking about loading and jumping and and being off of the ground when you hit the ball. So there's so many variables that go into footwork and even technique and strategy that to make one blanket statement, I think, is uh, it's not open-minded enough. It doesn't look at the whole picture, the 360-degree perspective that I like to take. So I always like to start out from a situational standpoint. Every shot has its own situation. And I think those that have studied the game, those that have studied movement, understand that you're supposed to do different types of movements depending on the different shots that are coming your way. So it has to be more of an adaptive adjustable approach. Yeah, Jeff, I think that's beautifully put um, because a lot of uh, amateurs, they, for example, they'll study, you know, say a forehand technique of Fetter and then try to, you know, hit the same exact or use the same exact technique for every single ball where, I mean, there's a lot of variables like you just mentioned where you can't just have the same technique every time. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, when you transitioned from the juniors to the college game, what, in your opinion, was the main or some of the main differences in the game in college? Well, transitioning to college, first of all, my dream at, at age 12 was to go to Stanford. I mean, at that time, Stanford was the top program in the country. You know, you had Patrick McEnroe, uh, you had Dan Goldie, Jim Grab, Jeff Tarango, uh, back uh, even before that time, Roscoe Tanner. Tim Mayot, John, I mean, the list went on and on. And so here I am 12 years old looking at Stanford saying, gosh, that would be my dream. And, you know, I go through the slump, no chance I'm going to even sniff Stanford. And they don't even know what my, who, what my name is. And I like to tell this story that my, after my junior year in high school, getting ready to go to my senior year, Jonathan Stark and Jared Palmer just lit it up that summer on the pro tour. And they had just finished their sophomore years at Stanford. So they were planning on coming back if they hadn't done well. And they just they did unbelievably well that this that summer. And they both called Coach Gould and said, I'm I'm we're going pro. And so all of a sudden I'm getting a phone call from the legendary Dick Gould in September before my senior year asking if I want to come on a recruiting visit in October or September or October and that he's looking for players for the following year because he had to start loading up again. And, and again, I wasn't, you know, I was, t- I think, 20 in the country my first year, 18. So I wasn't a, a true blue chipper. You know, I wasn't a rock star at that point uh, on a tennis court. I was going to be, a, you know, a solid five or six guy for Stanford, if, if that. And so um, 
I went there. I signed early. I got a half scholarship to go there. And um, when I transitioned there, I wasn't sure I was going to even start because there were two other recruits that came in with me. I was the third-ranked recruit at the time that we were recruited. And so based on the numbers game, I was slated to play number seven my freshman year. And so when I went in, I thought, you know what? I'm just going to do the best I can in challenge matches and see if I can crack the starting lineup. And it turned out that I ended up beating those guys my freshman year, and I played number five my whole freshman year with – I'd like to tell people the worst serve in college tennis. Honestly, <laughs> wasn't breaking 100 miles an hour, was spinning that puppy in and just grinding and ended up going 22-4 and four that year at number five singles with no serve. I remember going on a backcourt with Coach Gould and we would work on pronation and, and serving. And I even remember my stepdad coming to a tournament in Washington. I think it was the Pac-10. At the, tw- at the time, it was Pac-10. Now it's Pac-12. Pac-10 indoors and my toss was so high. He was like, man, you're going to bring rain down with that toss. So (laughs) I was all over the map my freshman year with my serve. And I think the adjustment, one was I thought it was going to be a bigger adjustment from the juniors. I thought, oh my gosh, college tennis. But it turned out that my skill set from the juniors of being a scrapper, being a grinder, finding ways to win, playing smart tennis, not having a big serve allowed me to adjust into that number five position and win at that level. If I was playing two, three, maybe even four singles, it would have been a much bigger struggle. So number five, number six was a great spot for me to be my freshman year, to learn the ropes, to transition into college, to get to practice with great players every day. And, you know, a guy from Colorado, I, you know, I wasn't playing with great players every day. So a lot of, a lot of players that go to college that have been on national team or played junior Wimbledon or junior French open, it's actually a step down for them to go to college because they're so used to playing guys ranked 300 in the world. It's a big shift the other direction. They're used to playing five hours of tennis a day in Florida. Now they're playing two hours, two and a half hours in college and they've got school and they've got girlfriend and whatever. And so for me coming from Colorado, playing an hour a day to two and a half my game elevated because it was a step up for me to come from Colorado. So for me, going to college was was awesome, and I actually was one of the the few that really improved. I think players do struggle improving in college because of the demands, because of the different challenges, and I was one of the ones that figured out a way to get better. Yeah, Jeff. I mean, I think it's just, again, amazing how – you know, if you started in the, you know, the number five in the lineup uh, your first year and then to go from there to top 100 ranking on the ATP tour, I mean, very few, if maybe any at all, have, have ever, <laughs> I think, achieved that. I don't know. It's it's very tough. Um, but you mentioned how uh, Coach Gould worked on your serve. But what are a couple of things that you think you improved the most um, as a result of playing college tennis? Sure. Well, one thing I want to point out is, you know, when I when I talk humbly about my journey and and the lesson for anyone listening is that, you know, now I have my online business and, you know, I, the tagline is always, you know, former top 100 player, you know, two-time Stanford All-American, blah blah blah. But, you know, 69 in the country at age 15, number 5 singles my freshman year uh with no serve at Stanford. Uh, that summer after my freshman year, I went to go play satellites, which now are futures, mm-hmm. and I couldn't get out of the qualifying rounds. I couldn't get one ATP point as a 19-year-old, soon-to-be sophomore in college. Now, you put that, those, those stats on paper, 
and say, is that guy going to be top hunter in the world? And no one's going to bet on you, right? And so it just speaks to what is possible if, if people believe, if people look for solutions, if, if people surround themselves with the right, uh, the right coaches, the right mentors, if they get the right information, that I really believe that you can get more out of yourself than you even thought possible because I didn't think I was going to be top 100 in the world at, at, at that time. And so it just became this really cool journey of, again, self-discovery, finding ways to get better. And I didn't know the term self-discovery when I was 19 years old. But certainly when I look back, I'm like, wow, you know, I went through a lot to get to this place where I'm at now to be able to say that I was quote unquote top 100. So really unique story, uh, one that w- most would not have predicted and again, just a, I hope an example to others that you know you really can't achieve a lot of things that if you're passionate about and and you want to keep getting better. So to answer your question uh, about college, you know my serve absolutely became a weapon in college. So after that freshman year, I told you I struggled on the satellites. Instead of continuing to play that summer, I went home to Colorado. I decided not to compete the rest of the summer. I watched Goran Ivanisevic on TV at Wimbledon dropping left-handed bombs with his archer-style serve. And I went out to the local courts, and I decided to model his serve. I'm a big fan of modeling. You alluded to it earlier that uh, you know people see Federer, and then they go out and try to copy his forehand. I think that's a great thing to do if you know what to model. And that's where I think people get into trouble is they don't model the right things because they maybe don't have the perspective or the experience and you know that's where 40 years of being in, in almost 40 years being around the sport i i think i have a pretty good sense of what to model and what not to model but at the time it was almost blind luck where i just copied goron that summer and something clicked i went back my sophomore year and i was serving 120 in practice the first week and the coaches yeah. looked at me bewildered saying what the heck did you do you know and I was like, I don't know. I just copied Goron, you know? And so it's one of those, you know, you hear the story about Andy Roddick and how he had a very average serve in the juniors. And then one day he was angry and he just did the abbreviated serve and he added another 20 or 30 miles an hour to his serve. And it was kind of, I heard it was just luck the way that happened. Mm-hmm. That's what happened with me and Goron. You know, I just copied him, serve got bigger. And that allowed me to jump from number five to number two in the lineup with no one graduating that the previous year. And so I really became, I went from being a grinder to a big serve and volleyer by my junior year in college because of that serve transformation. So uh, that was the beginning with the serve. That was the beginning of this amazing, uh, I guess, journey or discovery on, on understanding the serve and being able to not only hit massive serves as a pro, but also to be able to teach people. And that's, you know, the serve is one of the most mysterious shots in tennis. And I uh, have made it my mission to figure out ways to make the serve easier for, for players to learn. Because let's face it, most people do not have technically sound serves. And it's just because of habits and maybe because of what they've learned or what they, how they see things. So the serve jumped a huge level. I think in college, my forehand got better. Athletically, I grew three inches, put on 20 pounds. So I actually became a man. I got, <laughs> got hair, I got hair under my arms. So that <laughs> helped. Um, and you know, coach Gould, uh, was, was great in many areas with us. And one thing that he was big on, 
was was playing aggressive tennis and taking it to our opponents in big moments. And I think that's what allowed his teams to win so many national titles is that when the chips were down, he would give you that look and he would say, I want you in here. I want you getting into the net. And that, again, the game has evolved. The game has changed. It's a little bit harder maybe to get in now. You know, serving volley is not as alive as it was 20 years ago. But he was really big on attacking players' second serves. He was big on me serving and volleying and looking for ways to get to the net on big, in big moments. And I thought he allowed he, – he helped me to play more aggressive tennis and to not just sit back and run side to side. And so that was a big area that I improved on. And then I think leadership, uh, you know, being able to be on a team and be a leader and be a captain – to be able to be on that number one court my last two years and be a leader that that you know developed and improved tremendously while I was there. Oh, that's fantastic, Jeff. And um, I'm really glad that you highlighted how important the serve is to everyone's success. I mean, it's you're serving half the time, at least in singles, and uh, it's just great to see how you're able to model a, a Goran serve and then uh, how that was the start of just uh, an amazing run for you. And I am curious, with Goran's serve, what in particular do you think in his serve, uh, service motion, uh, really elevated your serve? Yeah, it's hard. You know, again, it, I, I got to go back over 20 years now, and I don't <laughs> really remember... Right. exactly how, why it happened this way or how it happened. It's mm-hmm. a bit mysterious to me, but I think that in, in this case, and again, I don't serve this way now because things have evolved for me mm-hmm. in understanding the serve, but I think for me, getting in a wider stance with him and rocking back, that extreme rock back and then shifting the weight forward, I think it just got me more momentum into the court. Mm-hmm. Certainly physically, I got stronger too, so that might have helped. But I think I was more, um, I was just more kind of passive and just even with my balance uh, at the beginning of a serve before I, I started doing the Goron deal. Um, so that, ro- that rocking back and then bringing the back foot up and just launching into the court, I think it just gave me momentum. And now, again, since I've evolved, I mean, I've got a platform stance now. I model more, mm-hmm. more of the Fetter Sampras serve. Um, it's not as extreme as Goron, but it was something I guess I needed at the time mm-hmm. to help me. And it's something I wouldn't really teach to players now, but again, kind of blind luck. But I think that's that's what really helped me get that momentum into the court uh, at that time. And um, maybe it loosened me up a little bit too. Nice, Jeff. Yeah, I mean, I kind of flashes back for me uh, a couple weeks ago to watching Monfils at City Open and um, when I was analyzing uh, the finals match uh, with uh, another guy from the media we kind of noticed how he has uh, he, he now goes in the, into the court a bit more when he um, tosses and hits the ball so I think that's helped to serve quite a bit yeah he, he switched to a pinpoint stance uh, in that tournament and uh, and he won it so yeah Clearly, clearly, whatever he's doing uh, is working. Yeah, yeah, and I noticed that you uh, you played his uh, his coach, right? Isn't Tilstrom his coach? Yeah, I did. I played him at the U.S. Open. Yeah, yeah. I did. Yeah, you yeah, played a lot of amazing players. I've I've got a quick um, question from uh, a fan named Harris. Who uh, so uh, Paul Goldstein, who was your uh, former teammate? He's kind of a legend around here. Uh, he's from Maryland, and he's you know obviously. Uh, was a professional tennis player, but uh, can you just speak uh, to what it was like playing with Paul? 
Well, Paul, Paul is a good friend of mine. And I remember vividly uh, after my sophomore year at, at Stanford, we, we lost in the finals to USC. And I actually, again, when you talk about setbacks, you know, we could do a whole podcast on, on setbacks in my career mm-hmm. and, and what, what happened after. And my sophomore year, we lost to USC. I lost the deciding match for the national title with Coach Gould on my court, 6-3 in the third. I lost to John Leach. Uh, his dad was the coach at USC. It was at Notre Dame. And, and honestly, I, I didn't think the sun was going to come up the next day. It was, it was devastating to lose the national title for Stanford. you know. And that, that was a tough end to my sophomore year. We had four seniors graduate that year. And four months later, we had Scott Humphreys, who won junior Wimbledon against uh, beat Mark Philippoussis in 1994. And then we had Paul Goldstein, who won three Kalamazoo's in a row, I believe, mm-hmm. one in the 16s, two in the 18s. And we have the two top juniors in the country coming into Stanford in September. And I got to tell you, those two guys, I, I, get, I, I get chills thinking about it. Mm-hmm. These, these two guys, they came in. And they showed us what the deal was, how, how it all worked. I mean, I ended up playing number one my junior year. Scott played two. Paul played three. And all we did was win. And these guys were just consummate team players. Uh, Paul was amazing. You know, he, he grew up. He didn't go to an academy either. He grew up with his parents. He had his childhood coach, uh, Mads, a uh, Swedish guy in Maryland. And uh, he just he did it. The, the old fashioned way. He was workmanlike. He was, he was, he was professional. He was always uh, a great teammate. And, and I loved Paul early and I still love him now. And he always speaks very highly t- about how I helped him adjust to Stanford. I don't know how much I helped him adjust. I just know I was super happy to have him on my team because he's always been a winner. And, you know, he won the three Kalamazoo's. He comes in, we go undefeated my junior year as a team, I believe we were 32 and 0. I think Coach Golds had four undefeated teams in his in his illustrious career, and one of them was that team, and that was because of Paul and and Scott being just stud freshmen that freshman year. And then sophomore year, we won again. We had a tough year. We lost three or four matches, and we upset UCLA in the finals. And again, Paul came up big. And then Paul ended up winning four national titles. So he won two after I left. So I always tell people, man, if Paul didn't, if Paul didn't come to Stanford, I might still be waiting to win that ring. <laughs> you know, he's just a winner. And, um, and then, of course, he goes on the pro tour and has a great career. This is a guy who's, you know, five foot ten, I think, when he stands up real straight, probably not, not more than 155 pounds. And he got the most, he got the most out of his ability level. He got the most out of his game and, and out of his mind and, and had a great career. And, and now he's instilling so many uh, great values and, and great wisdom on, on his Stanford team now as the head coach. Yeah, I just love it. I love hearing that uh, support and how you guys, uh, you know, bonded and just uh, the great success that Paul has had. Uh, again, he's, uh, you know, a great guy. And uh, I remember seeing him at the Aspen Hill Club where I used to train one day and he hit with a couple uh, of the players there and uh, definitely a cool guy. So, uh, you know, Jeff, you know, you're all about value and I appreciate it so much. I'm just going to sprinkle in maybe a couple other pro tour questions. So absolutely. Yeah. Right and so, yeah. And, and so we have a, uh, a fan question, um, I believe from Gene and he wanted to ask you, uh, what pro player gave you the most trouble playing, uh, against them and why? 
Okay. Well, I'm going to lump this. I'm going to lump that. I'm going to lump a type of player and then I'll mention a few. Perfect. So the player that the player that gave me the most trouble was the player that had a rocking two-handed backhand. Mm. So I was a lefty. I'm still a lefty. And I had a big serve. And whenever I needed points in the ad court, I, I would hit that hit the serve out wide, the wide slice in the ad court. Or my forehand, I loved hitting my forehand. My backhand was my worst shot. So I won matches with my serve and my forehand. So when I needed points, I'd serve wide in the ad court. And when I needed points off the ground, I'd hit that Nadal you know, hook forehand into the guy's backhand corner. The problem is that when I played guys that had world-class two-handed backhands, they could pretty much hit their backhand just as hard back to me. They could change direction and go down the line on me. They could hit it hard and deep cross-court to my forehand and back me up. They could return my wide slice well because they would just take that serve away. And so I, those, you know, Vince Spadia, Brian Vahaley, uh, I never played Agassi, but if I would have played him, you know, of course he would have given me fits. It was the guys that had the great two-handed backhands and the great return of serve. Jonas Bjorkman, I remember playing him when he was four in the world. He chopped me up like three and two at, at down at the NASDAQ, or I think it's now the, the Miami Open, mm-hmm. um, because these guys had great backhand returns and great backhands. And, you know, I used to tell – people always talk about how the lefties have a huge advantage in the game. I think they had a huge advantage 30 years ago. I don't think the advantage is as huge now. And people say, well, what about Nadal? Well, I think Nadal is an aberration because he's so much stronger than what well, was so much stronger than everyone else. And he could make the forehand jump so much higher than everyone else on the backhand that he's in, to me, he's an outlier. But if you remove him from the equation, how many guys that are left handed have been top 10 in the world in the last? five, 10, 15 years. It's just, mm-hmm. there's just not that many. And I know there's, I know there's less lefties than righties, but if you go back 30 years, you probably see a lot more lefties that are ranked higher. And I really believe it's the, the development of the return of serve in the last 30 years and the two handed backhand. I think that, you know, if you go back 30 years, again, the lefty could always serve to the one handed backhand, mm-hmm. get them to chip their backhand and attack. And so I always like playing guys that had one handed backhands because typically they had a weaker return on that side. And so, like I said, the guys with the two handed backhands just gave me fits. And uh, yeah, I still have nightmares about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's an awesome point pattern to swing them out wide. But I mean, if they have a, you know, a sweet backhand like that, then it's it's a lot of trouble to neutralize your biggest strength, arguably. Um, so another question that uh, I wanted to ask you is, I mean, it's obviously really tough to come back from injury. And so you were injured in uh, 1998 and 1999. And I just want to ask you if you can talk about uh, how you were able to come back from that injury. Well, number one, I'm a fighter. I right. mean, again, you, we talked, we touched on my junior career, mm-hmm. my college career, you know, the adversity I touched on losing in the semis and coming back the next year and playing number one. So I kept getting better after that. And then my pro career, my first year on the tour, I go from 800 in the world to 150 in the world in eight months. And I'm thinking, Hey, this, this thing's easy. Like <laughs> what's so tough about this pro tennis thing, you know, <laughs> but I hit a plateau. Uh, I, I, I played at the U.S. Open. We might talk a little bit about this, um, but I went to the U.S. Open and got a wild card. I beat Tilstrom, 
And then I lost to Chang in four sets. And the next day I was signing with IMG and everyone had, after I'd played that night match on TV against Chang, it was a four setter. They had tabbed me as possibly a guy who could be a top 50 guy. And I struggled that fall with the pressure and the expectations at the challenger level right after that. Mm -hmm. And then in December of that year, I hurt my ankle playing basketball back home, doing some off, off court training. And it was misdiagnosed for eight months. And then I ended up having surgery on my ankle at age 24. And then six months later, I had surgery on my right knee, no, my left knee. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so two surgeries out for two years ranking drops from 150 back to 800 again and I'm 26 years old starting over again you know so uh it was a lot of adversity it was a lot of introspection a lot of questioning if I should continue and uh but I I I I developed at that point I that's when I started developing a love for personal development for wellness I started going to yoga classes I started getting more into the spiritual side of of life and and how things work. And up until that point, I wasn't as into it. So around 24 years old is when I started investigating this. And it really developed out of this concept of, I guess, other than the meaning of life, uh, uh, peak performance. You know, other athletes in other sports were starting to do miraculous things. Dara Torres at the Olympics, at the Sydney Olympics 16 years ago, she was racing at 32, 34 years old. And then she came back, I think, at 40 and raced again and swimming and all these athletes and other sports were doing amazing things. And so I was really trying to study cutting edge ways to optimize performance and get back. And so probably most proud of the fact that I did have two early surgeries and I came back uh, stronger, fitter, better than ever and, and had my best results in my late 20s and early 30s. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Yeah, Jeff. I mean, uh, it's just your your passion and knowledge of the game is so evident. And uh, it's just really, I mean, we're just really lucky to have somebody like you who's just uh, bringing out all this amazing content. And I mean, like I mentioned, I, um, you know, did a lot of searches on YouTube and then I, I, I found you, then I, you know, purchased some courses from you and, uh, you know, you've been instrumental in helping me improve. And so, I definitely want to talk about, um, you know, just the creation of a, a great um, tennis site. Well, actually, two. So, <laughs> ah. so, so Jeff, uh, he first had uh, Jeff Salzenstein. Was it Jeff Salzenstein Tennis dot com or was it correct? Jeff? Yeah, we added the tennis onto it. Yep. Got it. Got it. Okay. And so he put out a lot of uh, great courses there, and then you recently, um, you know, created Tennis Evolution. And mm. um, but I guess I want to step back a bit and just ask you. Kind of, how did you come up with the idea for uh, for putting out this uh, this business of uh, online tennis courses? Sure. Well, just as I touched on about peak performance, that was when I look back on my career. You know, I broke the top 100 for the first time at the age of 30. Uh, I was a late bloomer. I was drinking, you know, green drinks, green vegetable drinks in my late 20s when people in the locker room were looking at me like I was an alien. 
you know, and now everyone's juicing and everyone's doing organic and everyone's doing gluten free. I mean, I was doing things 15 years ago, not to, again, not to toot my horn, but that's just the things I was into back then. And I was probably more into that learning that information and testing than I was making a lot of money on the tour or getting my ranking to the top 10. I mean, sure, those were goals, but I woke up every day with that passion to learn and get better. That's what fueled me more than the wins. And I think that's probably ultimately also why I maybe didn't achieve even more success because I would get distracted at times flying to different places and coaches and trying all these different diets and training programs. It it, it took me away from the focus of being more successful on the tour. But I don't have any regrets because it allowed me again to shape how I see the world now. And so I stopped playing when I was 33. I started coaching. I moved back to Colorado, started coaching, had a high performance junior program here, did it for a few years. And then something across came across the the, the interwebs one night or one day. <laughs> I don't remember what it was, but it was something about how you could create content on the internet and actually make money doing it. (laughs) And so when I saw that, I was very curious because at that time I was running two tracks. I was interested in this website concept and I was also interested in possibly building my own facility and, and developing, you know, Uber tennis stars, you know, tennis star players out of Colorado with, with my tennis system that I had kind of developed and shaped from all of my years of studying the game and trying to figure out answers. And so uh, I realized quickly that the internet was the direction that I wanted to go because I could work from anywhere. I could work from a coffee shop. I could film really cool content and figure out ways to monetize it versus actually building a brick and mortar and raising a lot of money and putting millions into something and not even knowing if that was going to work. So I followed that track. I started immersing myself just like I did with tennis and what I did with peak performance, I immersed myself in learning the marketing side of things. So I, I invested in coaching. I invested in mentorship. I studied all the best uh, marketers out there and tried to learn as much as I could and launched my first course in August of 2011. So we're coming up on five years. Time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> and I really did it. You know, There was no business plan. There was no... I didn't raise any money. I was I was teaching tennis, you know, 30 hours a week and taking all of the money I was earning there and dumped it into this website business hoping that I would find an answer. And early on, again, I did. I I had some great success early on launching these products and and following a model that had been successful with other online marketers and uh carved out, you know, Jeff Salzenstein Tennis and started creating a following. And about a year ago, well, it, it started percolating long, uh, longer than a year ago, probably two years ago. But a year ago is when I, I think I came up with the concept or the name of Tennis Evolution. And, and the reason why I changed from Jeff Salzenstein Tennis to Tennis Evolution, well, there's a couple of reasons. One is those that have studied the game or follow the game of tennis, some know who I am by my name, you know, Stanford guy played on the tour, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of tennis players out there that have no idea who I am. And so thought, man, it's going to be really tough for them to type Salzenstein into the URL. (laughs) So just my name alone, I think is a, maybe a difficult ask for people to wrap their head around, uh, long-term. I mean, of course you can brand your name, but I thought for long-term, 
if I ever wanted to bring other coaches into the mix, if I ever wanted to expand and include others, it would be better to put it underneath uh, an umbrella that didn't just include my name on it. And so I pulled my name off of it and uh, developed Tennis Evolution and with that idea that we want to grow on a bigger scale and expand and include others in this than just have it be all about Jeff Salzenstein. So uh, that was that was the reason why we did it. And, you know, I like the name Evolution because, again, it, it speaks to me me wanting to evolve and get better and improve as a tennis player uh, earlier in my career as a coach and and now as a businessman. Um, those are the things I'm interested in, personal development, motivation, inspiration, learning, getting better. And I'm hoping to attract tennis players and coaches and people that have that very same interest as well. So that's what we're trying to do to attract the right people that, that like my stuff. Yeah, I think that's uh, just beautiful. And it's so great because, I mean, as you mentioned, you know, there's always things you can learn about tennis and also uh, self-improvement. The game's always changing and you can't just be one of those uh, instructors, uh, not to hate or anything, but who just uh, are set in their ways. And um, it's it's really fantastic. And uh, you mentioned how you're always trying to uh, study the game and get better. And that just reminded me of that time that uh, I can't remember which tournament, but you actually changed your service uh, mm-hmm. motion or maybe it was your footwork on your serve in the middle of the tournament, uh, which was really something. Yeah, you know, that was that was cool. I was 28 years old. I was playing the Aptos Challenger near right. Stanford and had John Yandel come down and and he has he has the website tennisplayer.net where you can study uh high speed footage of the pros and he came down and put my serve on video. He liked my motion a lot, but at that time I had a modified pinpoint stance where I'd move the back foot and after the first round match that I barely squeaked by, he 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 taught me a he taught me about why he felt Sampras had the best serve of all time. He broke it down, the toss, you know, the shoulder turn, the platform stance, the reason why, the spin, all of that. And it made sense to me. And I said, you know, I'm 28, I'm 180 in the world. What do I have to lose? I'll give this a try. And he's like, yeah, you know, you should, you should try it after this tournament. I think it can really help. No, I said, no, 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 no. I'm going to try it in my next match. And he looked at me like, you're crazy, dude. And I'm like, well what do I have to lose? I'm 180 in the world. I'm barely breaking even, you know, as a whole nother, we could do a whole nother podcast on, on the business model of tennis. But you know, here I am a very accomplished tennis player struggling to get by. And I'm like, I don't have anything to lose. I mean, you know, let's try it. So I did, I worked on it for about 30 minutes, an hour. And I, and I switched to a platform stance and I ended up winning that challenger with it. And that's definitely one of the more memorable stories. And again, it kind of speaks to my open, I think my open-mindedness. And that's, this is actually the biggest, one of the biggest challenges I've had as a coach is that because I am open-minded and I'm willing to try things, but at the same time, I give students, I want students to try it when they're ready, not when I'm, not when I tell them to, Mm -hmm. they have to be ready to embrace it. But that's been one of my challenges is I work with players that, you know, don't have as maybe as an expansive view of things that I do. You know, they're younger juniors. They're a little more fixed with their mindset. They don't have the, the, the expansive growth mindset. And so I can't really get them to do the things I want them to do. And that, that's sometimes challenging for me because I'm like, man, like we could really do something special here if you had that perspective. And so you have to try to meet students where they're at instead of wanting them to be exactly like you are. So uh, I'm still, practicing that skill all the time 
Yeah, well, I mean, you're doing an excellent job. And uh, I'm wondering, uh, you know, you've done so many choruses and also free videos. There's hundreds of them on, on YouTube. Mm-hmm. But um, which course, if you can think of one, are you most proud of? Well, I, I'm probably, I'm probably, hmm, I'm most I'm very proud of the tennis serve secrets because that was the third program we ever did back in 2012. And so I was starting to get the feel after chopping up the first course, as far as production and and quality, it really wasn't very good quality, although it sold really well and people loved it and they got a lot of value out of it. We learned from that one. We learned from the second one. And so that third one, we really kind of dialed it in and, and got it right. I thought, out of the gate early. So I was really proud of the success we had with that one. And, um, it's a very, it's a very powerful program. It's an A to Z blueprint on the serve breaks down every component of the serve, probably ready for an update, probably could shoot some videos to get, get in there. Cause it is four years old, but proud of that one. And then I, I'm actually, there's an, I did a flexibility course, mm-hmm. uh, this in the last year, I like doing that one. Um, but I, I think that I think about all the different courses. We have a buggy whip blueprint course on the buggy whip forehand. I think that's a cool one because a lot of coaches don't think that we should teach the buggy whip forehand to people. I happen to be in the camp that you do provided that you teach it the right way, but most people don't really teach it the right way. So most people shouldn't be teaching it. Um, so that's kind of a unique course that I liked making. And then I also made one on the transition footwork, which, I love teaching footwork. I think it's a lost art. I think that uh, if you really study the pros, they really move efficiently and in the right way, whether it's natural or whether it's been taught. Um, and I believe there's a way to teach it. So if someone's willing to embrace the footwork and learn it, that's cool. And, and I think transition is a part of the game that most even pros don't understand these days because everyone's been growing up, you know, playing from the baseline. So I really, I'm proud of the transition footwork course as well. So I know you asked me for one, but I couldn't stop there. I had to mention <laughs> a, um, a couple of them that, that, that's, uh, stand out for me. No, that's perfect. And so I've seen, obviously you're always active, always trying to put out great content. What are a couple of the newest, um, you know, courses that you've put out? Yeah. So we're right, actually we're right in the middle of a launch right now for, uh, a sm- smaller course called the Backhand Secrets, the One-Hander. So it's just a a short uh, course tutorial. There's about 25 lessons on the one-handed backhand. So we're finishing that up this week. Uh, we've got a, a program that we're launching in a couple weeks on net play, uh, mainly on the volley. Uh, again, about 25 lessons, smaller courses. Now, I've already created full programs on the volley, full programs on the one-handed backhand, but they're really big programs. And so I felt like it was important to actually create some smaller ones that people could digest a lot easier than the bigger ones. So that's what we're doing right now. And then we're also really passionate about our new membership uh, site called Tennis Evolution Plus. Uh, Actually, Tennis Tennis Evolution Plus Premium is the one that we really want to get people inside of. And the reason being is that we're actually uh, offering, basically you get access to every one of my programs if you're a member. So uh, we have over 25, I've made over, I couldn't believe I made over 25 programs in the last five years. We've been busy. And so just a lot of content. So if someone's passionate about tennis, they love the game, they want to learn, they want to get some unique opinions, some out of the box, something different besides watch the ball, bend your knees and turn the shoulders. 
if they want something different, if they want something that actually works, um, I think they should check out my stuff because I thought a lot about this, you know, again, as a player, I was being told information by coaches that didn't resonate with me. And so I kind of had to assimilate the best that I was learning from different coaches and also assimilate from all the modeling that I did of pros. And I realized a lot of the pros are doing things with the racket and with their movement that's not being taught by coaches. So I think there's a breakdown in what we are seeing pros do and then how the messaging or how the communication or how the skill set is being taught. And that's what I've been just totally passionate about. Like, how can I take what the pros are doing and, and break it down for recreational players to, to allow them to learn in kind of these bite-sized chunks? Yeah, that's amazing. As we mentioned earlier, I mean, it, it's tough for amateurs to watch pros and then pick up on the right thing. So, I mean, that's something that you're doing and, and you're constantly trying to solve tennis players' problems, which is, I mean, we're so thankful for that, uh, Jeff. Um, a couple random questions for you, perhaps. So, okay. what, So what three tennis books would you give as a gift to your favorite tennis student? Sure. So, uh, what's the Timothy Galloway book? I'm already spacing it. Um, Oh, uh, inner game of tennis. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Inner game of tennis. Absolutely. Uh, has to be in the library. And then I think, you know, when it comes to tennis books, I honestly, I don't, I don't have a ton that I'm, Mm -hmm. that I'm, that I know very well, but, but again, because I'm so into personal development, and uh, I have a couple of books that I, I think can really expand someone's mind to being open to learning. Uh, I would say that uh, Jonathan Livingston Siegel is a great book. Uh, it's a quick read. It's about a seagull that doesn't follow the herd, doesn't, doesn't fly with the flock. He does his own thing, and he soars to new heights. Um, that, that's one of my favorite books and my old coach who helped me break the top 100 actually nicknamed me Siegel uh, based on the book because I was always out of the box and doing different things and trying tinkering and trying some things so that's a great book The Alchemist is another awesome book about going on your own unique journey so I'd probably get that those books into a player's hands also anything like inspirational like Tony Robbins work uh, anything again I just think the mind is so po- powerful, and I know we haven't touched on this today, and maybe we can do it on another po- podcast, but Definitely. you know the mind we the only thing stopping ourselves is ourselves you know we we put limitations on ourselves based on how we think, what we say, what people say to us, and what we believe about what people say to us and I just think we have to wake up every day conscious about how we're speaking to ourselves, and then we have to transfer that to the court. So, so players that are just playing and don't have that awareness of, of how they speak to themselves, how they see the court, how they're visualizing, what they're doing, they're really missing a big part of, of the development of improving and finding solutions. And I think that's what holds people back. So any books, um, there's a book called Mindset that talks about the growth and the fixed mindset. And there's another sports book called Mindset. Um, I'm spacing her name, who, the person that wrote it, but it's really good on the mental game. So, um, oh, I, I'll tell you another tennis book, Jeff Greenwald's little tennis book. Uh, I think it's like 50 tips to play your best tennis. Right. Um, so I'd probably go with the, the mindset stuff rather than tactical or 
strategy when it comes to tennis books. Oh, that's awesome. No, I mean, it's so hugely important. And I, you know, a lot of times I mention how, uh, you know, all these concepts that will help us improve the most in our tennis game are obviously uh, directly related to uh, self-development. And, um, you know, one thing that I've been doing is uh, I've been journaling. So uh, in the morning and then uh, before I go to bed, I uh, the two two ones that I recommend are the five-minute journal, which a lot of uh, entrepreneurs are using. And then I recently picked up uh, the Freedom Journal by uh, John Lee Dumas, which is, uh, you know, a 100-day kind of journey to accomplish your goals. So, um, But, you know, I mean, self-development, like Jeff said, is just uh, will really elevate your life and your tennis game uh, hugely. So That's true. Yeah. And uh, Jeff, if you could have dinner with three tennis pros, living or dead, who would they be? Andre Agassi. Mm-hmm. And I would love for him to share with me, be as vulnerable as possible about everything in his life that he went through, mm-hmm. knowing that it would be held in complete confidence. Nice. Uh, because I think there's just a lot of depth and a lot of uh, a lot of uh, cool insight that he would share, whether it was confidential. I mean, whether he shared everything or not, I'd still learn a lot. But I would want to know, like what really happened in the, you know, what really happened in the trenches. Another guy would be, uh, Roger Federer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's a, a fantastic person, a, an incredible ambassador for our sport. And again, I think he would, he would just be so interesting to learn about and learn what makes him tick, uh, to be able to ask him questions about how he learned and how he picked things up. And then finally, Arthur Ashe, uh, mm-hmm. I think that would be an incredible dinner, uh, to share with him, to talk about all the things that he went through and he experienced and his perspective on life. Those are great picks. Um, I'd probably pick the same as you. Um, and we have a listener question, another one from Paul. And you kind of alluded to kind of your practice of yoga, but he was wondering what your opinion is on meditation. Yeah, uh, I think I saw that comment from Paul, and mm-hmm. uh, Paul's been an awesome Facebook friend mm-hmm. of mine, and uh, he's from the D.C. area as well. So I meditate uh, almost every day. I don't want to say I do it every day. Sometimes I miss, but I'm probably at about a 90% uh, rate of, of meditation. I sit uh, in stillness for 10 minutes every day. Um, I've tried 20 minutes before. That's been a little more challenging for me to get to 20 minutes. Actually, not because I don't want to do it. It's more because I just, I think it just, I just, I feel like I'm too busy, which is just an mm-hmm. excuse. But um, yeah, so I, I sit for 10 minutes. I don't have any, um, uh, expansive or elaborate chants or mantras that I do, but I do take time almost every day to sit and to be quiet. And I think that's really important to do. And there's clearly more and more people are, are getting turned on to it. It can improve your performance and it can improve your, your life. And, and I think, yeah, I think whoever you're, who you're surrounding yourself with in life is important. Mm-hmm. And if anyone's sitting for 10 minutes a day in silence or 20 minutes or whatever, they're probably going to be pretty calm. They're probably going to be pretty grounded people. So I think the people that are, you know, waking up and they're on the go all the time and they're, you know, always 
uh, triggered or reactive to different things in life and not taking their, that time to slow down, whether it's meditation, whether it's walking in nature for 10 minutes, getting outside, I, I think you're going to see a difference between how reactive people are. I've noticed difference. When I take that time every day, it definitely helps me. Oh, perfect. Yeah. I mean, I try to meditate uh, when I can in the morning as well um, after a little bit of exercise. And quick follow-up on that. Is there a particular uh, name for the type of meditation you do? No, it's the it's the Jeff Salzenstein <laughs> sit for 10 minutes and set a timer and stop when you're done meditation. Um, you know, there's a lot of different styles out there. Right. And I personally, I just like to sit and let me tell you, my mind is busy a lot of those 10 minutes, but I think just the mere act of showing up and doing that uh, is is good enough for everyone. Um, and, and sometimes you'll find those little glimpses where things are quiet and your mind's not racing. Mm. Uh, but it is the best time to do it right when you wake up and right before you go to bed because that's when you know, hopefully you're away from technology and, and your mind is, is, is quieter and in a state where you can, you can receive and you can be in a calmer state. Awesome. And do, do you let the thoughts just roll out or do you try to return to a state of quietness? You kind of like return back to, you know, you block it out. Block right. It out. So I think, you know, I think the easiest thing is funny. It's kind of, there's a revert. I used to do this on the, when I used to play, when I would get tight on break points, a lot of times I wouldn't play well on break points because I would tell myself, okay, just make the return. And it would actually mm -hmm. tighten me up more. Yeah. And so I would sometimes tell myself, like, try to miss. Try to miss this return right now. But because I cared so much, like, my body literally would not let me miss. And so it actually would free me up. It's, it sounds weird. But um, for those listening, you might want to try it sometime. If you're hung up on break points, tell yourself, yeah, let's try to miss this return. You know, hit out on it and mm. see what happens. But the same thing holds true with the thoughts is sometimes you could actually sit and tell yourself, think about a lot of stuff or, you know, try to think. And all of a sudden you find yourself getting quiet again. It's when you try to push away the thoughts or judge them is when you actually probably start to think even more. And so I just kind of watch the thoughts and just aware of it and just notice when things quiet down again. I don't try to force it and I don't try to judge it. And I think for a long time, I didn't meditate because of that concept. Like I thought I had to do it a certain way or mm -hmm. do it well or whatever. And now I just, now I just sit and I just, I just try to watch the thoughts and see if things will quiet down, but I try not to force it. Awesome. Yeah. It's so relaxing. I've tried to use a app called Headspace before, and it actually alternates between letting you just let the thoughts flow and then also trying to return back. But I mean, like you said, just the mere act of doing it will really keep you relaxed and grounded. And that's, that's so awesome. Absolutely. Um, yeah, man, Jeff, I wish I, you know, had 10 hours to talk to you, but I mean, I, um, you know, I appreciate your time and just, uh, one other question content wise is, so, I mean, there's a billion tips you can give us and that you've, you've given us, but w what is one tip that you would give our audience exclusive of the other content that you mentioned uh, that you think will help them improve their tennis games? All right. This is, this is, I mean, of course <laughs> I could give so many, but the one tip and, and it, it's funny when we get on Facebook and we're in the, you, I think you and I are in the competitive coaching group. There's like yeah. 4,000 coaches in there and yeah. sometimes there's some things posted and I get in there and, 
kind of give my opinion and probably my strong opinion, but I try to do it in the nicest way possible. But mm-hmm. I'm really big on, and you'll see if you end up, if people end up investing in my programs, I'm really big on the finish of a stroke. And I think it drives other coaches crazy because those that are so into the contact point mm-hmm. and they focus so much on contact. And all I can say, well, it's not all I can say, but you know, Robert Lansdorp coached five number one players. He was huge on how players finished. You know, if they want extension, the hand and the racket has to finish out in front of the body. It doesn't wrap over the shoulder. So I do a lot of drills with that. Um, I worked with another coach that had me focus exclusively on the finish to improve my fundamentals. And then I personally experienced where when my arm was heavy on my forehand, I noticed how my my hand would go down by my side at the follow through and balls would just dump in the net. But when I really exaggerated my finish Mm -hmm. and I thought nothing about contact points, uh, my game improved. And so then I started working with, with players and I started having them finishing certain ways and they got better. And so when I watch rec players, when they miss shots, usually they don't finish well. They, 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 they hit and kind of poke at the ball or they stop mm-hmm. or they finish across their body and they just don't finish well. And so it's really that simple, like finish every shot. And I can equate it to life. Like if you have a goal, you have to have the end in mind. Like where's the end point? And, and that's what a stroke is. That's the end point. And I feel like if you end well, there's a really good chance that the things before are going to naturally happen. And it's a, it's a, again, beginning with the end in mind, it's working backwards. And I think a lot of coaches get caught up in shoulder turns and hip turns and back swings and contact points. Mm-hmm. I can only tell you from my experience as a player and as a coach that if I get people to finish really well and they have good balance at the end of the stroke, good things happen. Uh, that's just, uh, I mean, incredible advice. And I can totally back you up on this. I mean, whether it's my forehand, backhand, or serve, when I when I finish properly and I'm balanced, uh, you know, usually my shot is uh, a lot more penetrating and just more solid overall. And uh, I remember watching one of your videos talking about uh, finishing properly, and I implemented it because sometimes I forget to, you know, finish as, as well as I could and totally, uh, totally works well. Um, so Jeff, um, you know, we, we mentioned, uh, tennisevolution.com, but where else can we find you and, uh, you know, your website, tennis evolution online? Right. I, you know, again, I would go to tennisevolution.com. I, we have a blog there that's blog.tennisevolution. Go there. Uh, we actually right now at the time that we're recording this, uh, podcast, we, we have, uh, you can get your personalized serve score so you can take a quiz Find out what your serve score is. Uh, you will have to give your email address. Then you will be on my, on my, uh, in my database, and you'll be getting emails pretty much every day. As you can attest, uh, I email my email list almost every day. I'm passionate about getting content out there, a mix of information and a mix of promotions. Uh, because if I'm not promoting things and if I'm not sharing my information, then I'm not serving and, and providing value. So I'm, if you're love tennis and you like my vibe and, and you want to improve, I'd love for whoever's listening to come over and check out my site and, and subscribe and, uh, check out all the free content that's there. And of course, if you feel like in, investing in some of my programs, I'm not going to turn that down either. <laughs> no, for sure. And as I can attest, uh, I mean, the emails, you know, 
first off, they take so, you know, a lot of effort by Jeff to, you know, consistently put them out there. And then they're full of great content. You know, I mean, obviously, Jeff is, you know, going to suggest some courses that he thinks will help your game. But he also just provides a lot of free value, you know, a lot of just like, you know, no links in there, really. There's just so much content. And um, Jeff, I mean, I just pe- people like you and Tomas from Field Tennis, Will and and everyone else who's putting a lot of effort into this, we really appreciate it. Uh, I highly, highly suggest that everybody visit uh, TennisEvolution.com. Um, you know, the first courses that I ever uh, got, like I said, were from Jeff. And um, just so much great free and paid content. And uh, Jeff, you know, again, I, I wish we could talk for uh, forever, but I'd love to have you on another time. And uh, I just want to thank you so much for uh, doing what you do and being such a passionate figure in the sport. And, um, you know, I just wish you all the best moving forward. Thanks a lot. Had a great time. And yeah, definitely bring me back when you want to circle around. There's a lot more we can talk about. And mm-hmm. uh, I, congratulations on your podcast. And I look forward to seeing you get uh, even more exposure and, and keep providing the awesome value that you do. Thanks so much, Jeff. I really appreciate it. All right, guys, I really hope you enjoyed that interview with Jeff Salzenstein. Um, I certainly did, and I learned a ton from speaking with him. Um, I just want to, again, give a shout-out to Jeff. Um, he is really a great guy. You know, I had never met him before uh, the interview, and, and we actually talked for about five minutes or so uh, beforehand, and he just, you know, he asked me about my background and everything like that, and uh, it was really a pleasure to speak with Jeff. He's a, just a super passionate guy always trying to find the best techniques and strategies and, uh, you know, everything to help players get the best out of their potential. And um, again, you know, Jeff, appreciate you coming on the show and I look forward to speaking with you soon. So everybody definitely go check out tennisevolution.com and also Jeff's YouTube channel as well. Just search for Jeff Salzenstein or Tennis Evolution and you'll find him up there. I'd also really appreciate it if you guys would subscribe to the Tennis Files podcast. Um, I mean, I've really put a lot of uh, work, which I've enjoyed very much, uh, into the podcast to bring uh, you guys some great interviews. And I, you know, all I want to do is just to get this material out to as many people as possible to, so, you know, at least a few of you guys will like it and, um, you know, learn something about the game. And uh, even one tip can really bring you guys uh, far along your journey and your tennis career. So, um, you know, I'd really appreciate it if you guys would subscribe and you can do that on iTunes by just going to tennisfiles.com slash iTunes and then clicking on the blue view and iTunes button and hitting subscribe or, I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory, whatever platform you're using to listen to the show, just go ahead and hit the subscribe button. Then you'll get the episodes downloaded straight to the app that you use to listen to the show, uh, as soon as I publish it versus having to wait, uh, for, I guess a few hours or so until it uh, hits the platform for the rest of everybody. So yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, I also do want to give a shout out to Renee, who, um, so I was trying to get some information on how to log back into one of Jeff's courses that uh, I purchased a year ago. And boom, Renee immediately gave me a quick answer. And you know, I got what I was looking for. So uh, Jeff, you know, uh, Renee's doing a great job. So I'll leave you guys with a quote as I like to do and I think I've forgotten to do um, for the maybe an episode or two. And that quote is by Jim Ryan, uh, Ryun perhaps. And the quote that he said is, motivation is what gets you started, 
but habit is what keeps you going. So you guys have to really find the motivation within you, but also that sense of urgency that tells you that, hey, I need to keep striving for my goal. You know, I'm motivated, but I, I want to keep going. It's not just something where you um, get pumped up and then just, uh, you know, it fades away. So thanks so much for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. Uh, I'm really happy to have you uh, be an audience member and uh, appreciate it. So we'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. Um, Be sure to subscribe and have an awesome week. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.